Listening Dog Media. You're talking like a man as well who appreciates just how much of a nightmare it is to have anything in the evening (laughs) when you do the jobs we do. But they're like, oh, can Dave get here at 2pm for rehearsals? (laughs) Wrap at half ten, you know. Anyway, I'm not whinging. Here we go. Take it away. All right. Go ahead. How to DJ. How to DJ. 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 How to DJ. Don't wait for some radio station controller to give you permission. Get on with it. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins, and this is How to DJ. Personality radio for me is what I love listening to. It's made me a better broadcaster, I think, commercial radio. We're all egomaniacs who present radio shows, aren't we? How to DJ. A podcast that explores the life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much-loved DJs, where I ask them to pick five questions from a box of 45. I suppose... I was into hijinks. My guest for this episode of How to DJ has presented hugely successful shows on Capital and XFM. Kind of my first fanboy moment of my career. He's a TV presenter. I've really whored myself out, Chris. I've I've been everywhere. And he's the award-winning host of the Absolute Radio Breakfast Show. That comfort is what allows you to kind of push yourself onto the next level. So hopefully it's kind of onwards and upwards. It's like meeting the one for the first time. When you're being honest in yourself and your ideas come from a a genuine place and your love of the music comes from a genuine place, then I think that people can believe believe in you. you. It turned out we definitely were not allowed to do this. (laughs) The audience are on the journey with me and I'm very much on the journey with the listeners as well. These are things that, that I'm saving and mean a lot to me. So they're the kind of real special moments. Dave Berry, welcome to How To DJ. Chris, thank you so much for having me. Hello, podlers. It's lovely being on board. Dave, before going into the record box of questions here, you're a South London boy. What were you into as a kid? I suppose I was into hijinks, I like to think. I know there's this horrible kind of groundswell of people around our age uh, taking to Facebook and just trying to remind younger people that it was great when we grew up in the 80s, we climbed trees, and there's all that stuff going on. But thinking about it, it's kind of true. It was, a, I suppose, a working class version of Swallows and Amazons. So it wasn't so much like, oh, Timmy, let's build a yacht, shall we? It was much more kind of, oh, Paul, let's go around the back of World Lever and hit each other with these giant bits of polystyrene that they've thrown out into a skip. <laughs> Whereabouts was it? Well, I was born in Lewisham Hospital in South East London. I grew up in uh, in Charlton and then it was, it was a great childhood. And looking back at those times, I've got a real kind of, I suppose, Stand By Me-esque, you know, memories of that time. And, you know, my dear friend Alex, who we tragically lost in 2013, and and with his death, it was not only sad for all of the reasons it is to lose a friend, but it was also what kind of keeps coming back to me even now is just that between Alex and I, there was just this unique window into that particular part of my life. You know, everybody has friends who they can maybe hook up with and it might be a work colleague or someone you went to uni with but to have maintained and still been so close to someone who I'd known since I was like three years old where you were plotting to take down the local bully and you were you know hiding in the woods and playing football together and and all of those things that was what's kind of the thing that keeps kind of coming back to me about it really is that there's nobody else that I can talk to about those memories who would remember exactly where we were and remember how it smelt, how it felt, you know, what what was going on. 
But the other beautiful thing about that, in, in remembering Alex and remembering those childhood times, was they were full of adventure. They were full of hijinks. And, you know, I, and I'm grateful for that. I mean, again, they were also full of lots of screen time. You know, my parents were far from perfect. I did a lot of gaming. I watched a lot of TV. <laughs> and, you know, I, I've got a little sister, Katie, who's only 18 months younger than me. So, you know, we used to kind of play together quite a lot. We were raring young siblings where we used to get on. We used to get the... Um, Chris, you're like this. We used to get the tape deck and I used to make my sister record swear words. Into, well, <laughs> they weren't really swear words. They were naughty words. I used to do fake radio shows and make my sisters be interviewees. They hated it. I get that about you, Chris. And there's nothing wrong with it. You're kind of doing what you wanted to do as a boy, right? <laughs> yeah. That's where it all started. What was school like? Um, school was, and I have thought about this from time to time with varying degrees of worry. I don't recall a great deal about it. There were a few kind of seismic events at school that will always be with me, ones that kind of shaped and moulded the person before you today. But in the main, I'd like to know, Chris, do you remember kind of the process of getting up and commuting to school and sitting in class? Because I've got snatches of memories of that stuff. But apart from, as I say, some kind of big moments, it's all just a bit of a blur, really. Yeah, I know what you mean. And it's weird to say that when it's such a defining part of your life. Precisely. Yeah. I mean, one was the tragic murder of Stephen Lawrence and Stephen was at our school doing his A-levels. So he'd come over from another local school and he was um, a few years above me. So I, I didn't know Stephen, but I remember arriving at school that day and I remember the, the tears. I remember how upset everybody was. I remember a special assembly where the teacher's basically saying, you know, if you need to talk about this or you feel you need support, then, you know, we can offer that. We have brought counsellors in and people that you can talk to. And I remember that day. Uh, well, obviously, you know, you would. And looking back, I think the school handled it as well as you could with such a tragic death. I didn't enjoy school, but I got into radio because I suppose by not enjoying school, I was becoming more and more obsessed with the radio and how it worked and how I could get on it. So it never felt like exam results were ever going to be that important. So I don't think I ever felt enormous pressure to do well. I went to university, I went to Nottingham and was working at BBC Radio Nottingham through my university years. Did you do well in your exams? Was that a big deal for you? Not really. Maybe that's the key, Chris. Maybe it was because I wasn't particularly motivated by exam results that the whole thing just seems to have washed over me apart from, you know, as I say, the, the, the big events. <laughs> I kind of hate this about myself and secretly quite like it. But uh, when it came to the crunch of my GCSEs, I went to my head of year and I said, what do I need to do to go to A-levels? Because a lot of the positive and brilliant things I took from being at secondary school were inspired by a desire not to be left behind by my friends. And I'd like to think the positive side of jealousy. And they involved my friends all kind of planning which college they were going to go to and what A-levels they were going to take. And I was way off the pace. And it was just washing over me. It was passing me by. So I needed to have a conversation with my head of year to say, what do I need to do? And he said, you need to achieve five A to Cs, which, by the way, David, is the bare minimum I expect from you, etc. Um, you need to achieve five A to Cs. And my GCSE results were five Bs, three Ds and two Es, because effectively I, 
picked my five favourite subjects, the ones I felt I enjoyed the most and the ones I felt I could do the best at. And I got to go to A-levels with my friends. The other big event was born out of a similar thing where some of my close friends were in the school orchestra and I arrived at school one day and there was this real buzz going on and they were all going on an exchange trip to San Francisco. Can you believe that? So they were all going to California and I was determined that I was going to go to California as well with them. So I um, I knocked on the music teacher's door and said that I could play the clarinet, which I had done for about three weeks when I was eight. And there was about four months to go until the trip and I, I went as third clarinet. <laughs> and if I may do a shout out, Chris, on your brilliant podcast here, a big shout out to Sophie George, <laughs> the girl in the year below me who was principal clarinet and covered a lot of my miming <laughs> and uh, helped me board that plane back in uh, 1994. So thank you, Sophie. Wow, <laughs> what a field trip. So, Dave, were you into music then beyond the orchestra? You know, you were growing up in London. Were you going out? The first gig I went to would have been around that time. I went to see Cypress Hill at Brixton Academy. Me, Toby Simmons and the twins, Samuel and Matthew. There weren't many people at a Cypress Hill gig at Brixton Academy who got a lift home afterwards with their mate's mum. Let me just put it that way. Bless. We were too young to be there probably, but it was a great gig. Funk dubious were the support. So yeah, so that was the first gig I went to. And then my best friend, Toby, is a, is a trumpet player and, and he had a an unusual for kind of, I suppose, young teenagers, but he had a big love of kind of jazz and funk and that kind of stuff. So we used to go to the Blackheath concert halls and the jazz cafe and see various artists that he wanted to see. And I just kind of come along for the ride. What else were you into, Dave? I found the trip that I went to, to California uh, with the school orchestra to be life-changing in the way that the family I stayed with were a family of hippies and they just loved the Beatles and they loved Led Zeppelin and they loved the Doors. And I came back and even though these vinyls have been sat in my mum and dad's collection since long before I was born, I came back with a real appreciation for a lot of that kind of stuff coming out of the 60s, both from the UK and stateside. And that, that kind of launched a lifelong passion, really, that trip. So what happened when you left school then? I went to work in a vintage clothing store called The Observatory, which was owned by the Ians, partners in both business and in love, and two uh, remarkable men who I'm, I'm so pleased they're still in my life today. Uh, they own a, a still a vintage clothes shop, which is now on uh, London's legendary Brick Lane. But they are so passionate about clothes and vintage clothing and therefore their customers are passionate about you know what they're going to be wearing and that is always intrinsically linked to music as well so you would have those guys and girls come in who are mods and you'd have the small faces on on a saturday afternoon they'd be blaring out people would be coming in they'd be looking for that perfect blazer with the five inch vents or whatever they wanted they needed to be just right and the boys were the go-to people for that. So if you were kind of passionate about a particular scene, then they would look after you. And so I went to work there and I worked there for a couple of years and it was just a really great period in my life. I, I look back on it very fondly. So would you say that having left school, you were into music and fashion? Would that be accurate? I think so, yeah. The thing with working in the observatory was I loved interacting with people. I liked the customers. I liked their passion. I liked the fact that we were encouraged to make a mixtape and bring it in on a Saturday. And for those who don't know, you know, Greenwich is a kind of 
market town and on a Saturday and a Sunday, it's really buzzing there because it's a tourist attraction as well as a great place to hang out and Goldsmiths is near there. And so there's a real young, great vibe going on. So to be a kind of teenager and in the centre of that, because geographically the shop was in the centre of it all, felt really special. And I love the clothes. I love meeting people, people coming in and being passionate, playing the songs loud and proud. It was a great time. How did that lead to TV? Well, interestingly, and again, why I hold the Ians in such high regard is that people would come into the shop who might work in TV or in fashion or for a magazine or for something. And they would, you know, inquire as to whether myself and, and you know, the rest of the staff would, would want to be part of a shoot or a campaign or in a music video or anything like that. And they would always be really encouraging about giving us the time off to go and do that. They would say, don't worry if they're shooting on a Tuesday, I know that you're meant to be doing a shift that day, but just take the day off and go and do it and kind of live your best life. And when you get into that, and it might just be, as I say, being an extra in a music video or a little campaign shoot for something, but I really enjoyed it. And uh, one thing led to another and here we are, Chris. What was the first big gig on telly? The first big gig, I was 22 and I had a show on Nickelodeon, the kids TV channel which I loved working on. And it was really, you know, the nursery slopes of TV, you're thrown in there, it's live. You've just got to get on with it. I had some really uh, supportive co-hosts who have been doing it a long time and they took me under their wing, Yolanda and Munya. I kind of took down how cool the names were there as well because then it became Yolanda, Munya and Dave. <laughs> so I really dragged it down, Chris. Uh, anyway, so I was there um, doing a show and then I, I did a music show called Enlist, which was kind of supposed to be a, a kind of nod towards Trevor Nelson's MTV show, But For Kids. And incredibly, remarkably, uh, I got a BAFTA nomination for Best Presenter, which I lost out to to Ant and Deck because they've won everything forever. <laughs> but um, that drew the attention of MTV. So I then made the move to MTV. And then Channel 4? Yeah, then, yeah, did T4 as well and stuff on Channel 4 and ITV. And I've really whored myself out, Chris. So I've, I've been everywhere. I, I think it, it's an amazing story. And at the highest level, I, I used to watch you on T4 and I thought you were fantastic then. Curious to know how that turned into radio. Well, firstly, thank you for your kind words, Chris. I genuinely mean it. You know, it was um, real, uh, I think, hangover TV yes. for me at the age that I was watching you. 100%. We were a hangover TV generation. There was, there was a few of us, and it was a pleasure to have been that. Radio was something that I had a few meetings about. See, the interesting relationship that I have with radio is it wasn't I didn't care. I didn't know enough about it to realise just how absolutely incredible it is. And it's like meeting the one for the first time. It's like you've going through your life and it's great and you're having fun and you're on MTV and Channel 4, it's brilliant. And radio was just doing its own thing over there. And I had a couple of meetings with Radio 1 and I had a couple of meetings with Capital and Capital effectively offered me the opportunity to do a, a Saturday afternoon show. And whilst I was absolutely petrified at first, as soon as I relaxed into it, I realised that I'd found my vocation in life and, and what I wanted to do. And then, not, not always through my own choice, my, may I add, um, it quickly became my career went from being 80% TV and 20% radio to switching the other way around. And I feel so fortunate to be able to do, my dad points this out to me that, you know, I don't do a job, I do something that I love for a living. And 
radio is is 100% that. What advice were you getting at, at this time making that transition, even if it was a kind of subconscious transition from TV to radio? Well, the advice really was just to kind of relax and calm down. I don't know why I found it so difficult to make the transition as far as handling the nerves, you know, went. And, you know, I'd done hours and hours of live TV, but then as soon as I was in this environment, in fact, if you don't mind, Chris, I messaged my first ever producer, a lovely man named Paddy, who was my producer on Capital on Saturday afternoons. And I said, I was doing your podcast. And I said, would you send me a message basically telling me what I was like? Because a little bit like school, it's just a bit of a, a hazy time. May I read aloud? Yes, please do. He said, first show you were pooing yourself, absolutely terrified. You had no idea what was good or not, and you were convinced it was all bad. Some of it was pretty bad, but the majority was actually okay. I remember the costumes, always wearing black winkle pickers and long coats, even in the summer. You made it a mission to style me in your own image, and I'll be eternally grateful. So you can take the boy out of observatory, but you can't take observatory out of the boy. Um, On show one, you wrote me a list of clothing items you felt I should go and get to add to my wardrobe. There was lots of pacing. You were always pacing. You were scared of the desk, but you like standing behind it. You cling onto my back like a koala as I press the buttons. I regularly went home with claw marks on my shoulder and neck. Your grip was getting tighter as the link went on, but I couldn't flinch. Otherwise, you'd think I was reacting negatively to what you were saying. The claw marks regularly drew blood. We would go through the show and remove half the pop playlist from Capital and replace it with indie bangers. You were firm in the belief you'd been told we were allowed to do this. It turned out we definitely were not allowed to do this. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much to Paddy for all that. And yeah. Well, that, I, I suppose, takes us from Capital to XFM. Yes, it does. It, actually, it, that move to take half the songs off the playlist was literally what took me from Capital to XFM. Um, yeah, I, I mean, the move to XFM was kind of, I, I suppose, my first fanboy moment of my career. You know, I always felt what an honour it was to work for such prestigious TV stations and brands and all that stuff. But XFM was the coolest place on earth as far as I was concerned. And whilst, you know, my memories of it are I kind of, I was fine on Capital, it was great. Then I joined XFM and I got nervous, but it wasn't until Paddy sent me that that I realised I was nervous there as well. But going to XFM, you know, a key difference was me. It was that real sense of having to, to up my game. I felt the weight of the broadcasters that had been there before, the ones that were currently there at the time. This would have been about 2008, I think. And there was a whole dearth of incredible talent throughout the weekends there. And I got given an opportunity to do a couple of hours on the Saturday because, as I say, the programme controller called me and he said, I hear you've been let go by Capital because you kept changing blue for the Arctic Monkeys. (laughs) (laughs) Did you have an idea by now what you thought made good radio and how to do it, do you think? Um, if you want to ready the, uh, the sound of the cheese fest alarm for us, Chris, I genuinely believe the answer to that is the relationship between the host and the listeners. I think that that's the key because what I think makes good radio for the show that I make at the moment, for example, on Absolute, isn't going to be LBC's Nick Ferrari's breakfast show. You need to kind of have a, a, an idea of what your audience are after. You need to 
kind of stay strong in a way with what are your ideas and you don't want to be like the previous person. You've got to kind of make your mark. And that way, I think when you're being honest in yourself and your ideas come from a, a genuine place and your, your love of the music comes from a genuine place, then I think that people can believe in you and maybe you take a hit with the listeners. You know, maybe you don't if you're lucky enough not to do that. But it means that people can kind of come on the journey with you. And, and I've always felt that one of the key things about what makes great radio is the fact that the audience are on the journey with me and I'm very much on the journey with the listeners as well. And they are such a key part, as I say, Cheese Fest alarm, but they are such a key part of the show. And there would be whole elements of, of my breakfast show missing. There would be whole hours of content that would be gone if it wasn't for those amazing people out there who choose to call in and open up their hearts and their minds to whether it be a frivolity or a silly game or whether it be, you know, oh, that happened to me as well, Dave. That happened to me when I was. And that's just absolutely priceless. And that's the key. And whatever the audience are looking for, if you can build that relationship, you've got a great show. Can you describe your show? If I may indulge myself for a moment, I have this written down. Go ahead. Again. I'm going to describe it by quoting Tony Blackburn from the Radio Academy Awards this year. Yes. <laughs> Where we won gold. Relatable and original content impeccably delivered. So basically that with a lot of a waste than Kate Bush. And effectively that's my show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, congratulations <laughs> on, on that massive award. I Not mean, that I set you up for that, bless you. <laughs> you've been doing this at the highest level for a long time now and... I wonder, do you feel pressure or has it got easier? At the moment, I feel really just happy and content and not in a way that I'm taking my foot off the gas, but I feel that the team that I get to work with every morning are fantastic. You know, my co-host Matt Dyson has been a friend of mine since that first XFM weekend show and I was so pleased when we got reunited together. The team are all so forward thinking and smart and they have such great ideas. The audience have really bought into it now and, and I've got that relationship as I discussed, which I think is the key to good radio. So therefore, I, I just couldn't be happier with it. And that comfort is what allows you to kind of push yourself onto the next level. So hopefully it's kind of onwards and upwards. Yeah, long may you reign. I, I think I can say this being a, a really nice guy, I think that has got to be a factor in your success too. Thanks, Chris. I mean, that's, yeah, well, thank you. Time now then, Dave, for the first of your five picks from 45 in this record box at my side here. All the questions are on 45 Steve's. You say when, I'll dip in, you say when. Um, uh, <laughs> yes, go ahead. Pick the first one, please, Chris. Okay, here you go. What's been your best moment as a DJ? Um, I was getting quite philosophical about this not too long ago. I became a parent a few years ago for the first time. I've got one daughter, Evangeline, and uh, she's great. And she's getting to an age now, she's, she's three and a half, where she's starting to not show an interest, but she's curious as to what it is I do and how it all works. So obviously I've made her sit down and watch all of my back catalogue on YouTube. <laughs> um, but it, it got me to thinking that... <laughs> You're not even joking, are you? <laughs> of course I am. Of course I am. Um, here's Daddy and Uncle Liam Gallagher again. Um no, it's, <laughs> no, I am joking. Although I imagine when she's a little bit older and I've had a couple of glasses of red wine, that moment is more than likely going to happen, yeah. Chris. So, um, and all her friends as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me think the radio DJ does protest too much. Yeah, um, but in all seriousness, because of the pandemic, as a result of that directly, myself and 
everyone who works on the show received so many amazing correspondence and, and emails and messages from people who were just like, thank you for a slice of normality or explaining what a torrid time they're having. And I can't believe I laughed out loud at that bit this morning when Glenn said something or whatever it may be, or that, you know, which I don't have a say in, but that correct selection of the song at the right time for them. And they're just incredibly special things to have. I feel so fortunate to have them. And without being, you know, too morbid about it, and I wouldn't put Evie through it, but the idea that there is this small collection of emails and, and messages that, that I have, that some would go like, oh, you know, dad helped that person when they, they were feeling low just by kind of doing a radio show is, uh, is something really special. So whilst those people say how grateful they are, I'm really grateful for those things. And it's not just a throwaway like, oh, thanks very much. I reply and I delete it. These are things that, that I'm saving and mean a lot to me. So they're the kind of real special moments. It, it was definitely a privileged time, wasn't it, working through the pandemic? Chris, I mean, obviously you, you had it as well and you must have received your own pile and stack of, of correspondence. And when you're playing a song or entertaining a key worker or, you know, someone who's working in care or supporting somebody or someone who's not been able to go and see their, their parents or whatever it may be. It's just beyond humbling, really, you know. Absolutely. Back into the box for another question. Say when. When. What do you do while the music plays? Well, as producer Paddy pointed out, just pace up and down a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and claw, claw at my current producer, Mark. Do you still do that? No, I, I don't do that. Everyone will be pleased to hear. Um, I do pace still. It's almost like my legs power my brain, but my main focus is on the next talky bit, really. So we'll discuss where it's going to go. Or if I think I'm better off keeping it to myself, uh, then I will. So I'll like go and use the loo and then come back and then spring the idea on the others. I think that the element of surprise is one of the key successes of the show because I'm so fortunate to work with such warm, open and quick-witted people that I don't need to give them a heads up about what we're going to do and they'll be measured and funny in their response to whatever I throw at them and it's just a pleasure, a privilege. So, yeah. Do you think through you're out for each link? No, I don't. I think if <laughs> if anyone was to say I've got any skill at it, and I don't know if you're born with it or whether it's something that I've just worked out over doing this for over 20 years now, but I am good at finding the out. I have lots of shortcomings as a broadcaster, don't get me wrong, but I can usually hear the out. And it's another thing about, I know that a lot of people who like Absolute Radio, like the kind of music we play, of course, that's why they're tuning in. And I make sure that they get their songs in the morning and I won't sit around waiting for eight minutes of talky bits, waiting for it to come or wait for it to peter out. If I hear it and it hasn't got to be me, I, I'm not kind of driven in that ego way where I've got to have the last word. If Matt or if Emma says something that's really funny, it's the out, bang, we're into the song and that's the link done. So when I feel, I can feel it, you know, it's like when Luke Skywalker turns off his navigation computer. I'm comparing myself to a Jedi now. Let's move on, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Tight and bright, I think, is the message there, isn't it? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I don't care how long it runs for. If it has got to go to five minutes, and they do, or six minutes, then that's fine. But I don't like things when they get a little bit flabby and you're too long in it. You know, I like to get the gag, get the punchline, get out. Yeah, I think of it as sitting in the pub and... Would you still be telling the same story five minutes later before anyone went to the loo or went to the bar or whatever, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. DJ, DJ. How to DJ with Chris Hawkins.
still to come. Someone might not want me tomorrow and then it's all over. So the best and the worst to come from exactly the same place, Chris. <laughs> yeah, and I think that would be a very common answer for anyone that does this stuff. Oh. That's a great example of the listeners doing the work. It is. Back into the box, another one. Uh, when? Through the years, what have been your favourite show topics and or themes? I think a returning favourite has been a feature we do called the Cool Badge, where I ask the listeners to hand in the Cool Badge. Have you said or done something seriously uncool? If so, what is it? Let us know. And this is, again, a perfect example of the listeners just being amazing. I remember we had one guy. He was kind of like our age, and he'd gone out to relive a bit of his youth, and he'd bought himself in a kind of hipster way a chopper bike, you know, one of those little chopper bikes. And he said he was like, really chuffed with it and he was riding it down his street he's like in his 40s and there was this like gang of kids and they stopped him and they said like what's up with your bike mate and he said oh he said this is a original chopper bike and one of the kids looked at him and said looks like a clown's bike bruv <laughs> <laughs> give me the cool badge <laughs> and you can just imagine this like grown sized man on this little bike <laughs> Oh. That's a great example of uh, the listeners doing the work. It is. So, yeah, cool badge. We're resting it at the moment just because we were, you know, we, we did it every week for a while. It will be coming back, though, and that's certainly up there, one of my favourite stories from the cool badge, yeah. All right. Any other topics or themes? Well, we raced the Sinclair C5s along Margate Seafront, which was an amazing thing to do. At time of record, Chris, I'm about to embark on having a very small part in Only Fools and Horses, the musical, which is something we've been working on, courtesy of... I took my dad to see it. He's a big fan of the, of the show, and I took him for his birthday. And then Paul Whitehouse got in touch and offered me a line. So we've been, we've been working on that, and we've created our own fragrance... Poor Hom, poor Femme, poor you, breakfast number three. Um, we've made works of art. We tracked down the original little Maharaja from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. We've done lots of wild things. Yeah. Superb. Right, back into the box. Okay. Question four coming up. When? Is there anything you'd like to erase from your bio? 100%. My first appearance on Pointless Celebrities. Now, we were talking before we pressed the record button, Chris, and you said that as part of the hours that you keep as a brilliant uh, radio DJ and host on Six Music, that Doctors is on around the time of the day when you're either falling asleep or waking up and you got a part on it, which was brilliant. And for a while, Pointless was that show for me. It was kind of on at breakfast show host dinner time hours. You're slightly brought forward by a couple of hours from the rest of the world in my world if you know what I mean. And yours is even earlier yeah. than that. <laughs> Got it. So when they asked me to go on, I thought, yeah, I'll go on. I always do well at home. And the first question was so simple that it threw me. And it was A to Z, name a country. And it took me quite a while to get my head around what I was being asked. So I said, <laughs> I said, Finland. <laughs> And I was out in the first round. And then you've got that thing of like, I'm out in the first round, so that feels bad. Then I felt awful for Sarah Jane Crawford, who's a presenter that was my partner on it, because she's like arrived, got dressed, got ready for this, and now we're basically going home in the taxi. And then it dawns on you the third wave of all of this is it's going to be televised. So you've just got the horrible anxiety of waiting the months before yep. it goes on air, before everyone knows that you were named, asked to name an obscure country, and you said Finland. My goodness. <laughs> uh, a last question from the box, Dave. Say when. When? What's the best and worst decision 
you've ever made? So a best first. Um, best decision I ever made was, I think, giving all of this a go, uh, in quotation marks. And, you know, I said to my parents that I was effectively going to leave my job and I was going to try and get an agent and I was going to audition for things and could I please still live at home? <laughs> they were like, of course you can. I then said to the guys whose shop I was working in at the time, I, I told them that I was going to be leaving to give it a go. If it didn't work out, could I come back? They said yes. So I effectively, the best decision I made was to create the best possible safety net I could under myself. So then I could give myself a year and I could just go out and focus on it. So that's probably the best. And what about the worst? Uh, the fact that someone might not want me tomorrow and then it's all over. <laughs> so the best and the worst to come from exactly the same place, Chris. <laughs> yeah, and I think that would be a very common answer for anyone that does this stuff. Um, a last question here for you, Dave. There's some kind of non-specific catastrophic event with a caveat that you, Dave Berry, have to play the last three records on Earth. What would those three records be? So this is an in- a brilliant question, Chris but an impossible one to answer. So what I've decided to do is I've decided to put myself in the houses of the people around the world. This catastrophic event is coming their way. So I have gone originally just because no one would see it coming. I've got three songs, the last on earth. I'm going to play the theme tune to Hawaii Five-0. Superb. Love it. Yeah. That gets us underway. Then I think people are going to be confused and bamboozled by what is going on. So they just need some simple instructions and they want to have a good time. So I'm going to give them House of Pain, Jump Around. Just listen to the lyrics, jump around, let's go out, jump in, let's go out partying. For those who are feeling slightly more melancholy or for those who are in love, I think the perfect final slow dance comes courtesy of Etta James and At Last. Fantastic. Love it. They're my three. Dave, it's been such a pleasure. You've made a real impact on the radio industry and long may it continue. Chris, coming for you, that means a lot. And thank you for your kind words throughout. And it's been a real pleasure being on your podcast. Thank you. I really mean it. I am such a fan. I think that's been obvious. That's Dave Berry and that was How to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from. <laughs>